This gun sure looks deadly, but it's not the least bit deadly unless I point it at someone and pull the trigger. Gentlemen, this is Democracy Manifest. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Repeal the 20th Century. With me, I have Dr. DiLorenzo. Would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, I'm Tom DiLorenzo. I'm a recently retired college professor. I taught university economics for 41 years. And uh, I'm a senior fellow of the Ludwig von Mises Institute in Auburn, Alabama now. I'm the author of, or co-author of uh, 18 books. Uh, and today we're gonna talk about Lincoln, I guess. My latest is called The Problem with Lincoln. My first one was The Real Lincoln, which was published 20 years ago. And then my publisher, Regnery Publishing, uh, uh, got me to write another one, uh, The Problem with Lincoln, uh, two years ago. Yeah. I, I, I really wanted to have you on, uh, particularly because of your work on um, the history and the Civil War, because I think you would agree with me that in um, the public education sphere, uh, what we learn in our history classes about the Civil War is not exactly accurate, and it's, it's framed through a lens of uh, really just how, how the winners perceive reality. There's always that that quote that comes up that history is shaped by the winners and I think the Civil War is an excellent example of that um, so I wanted to have you on to kind of discuss those things because I think a lot of people are are unaware just um, of where it comes from so uh, the first thing I wanted to ask you about is uh, as you said yourself you have two books on Lincoln kind of getting on the topic of specifically of how he really wasn't this amazing president that everyone presents him as and uh, I kind of wanted to ask you, what is the main misconception about Lincoln and, and problem with his presidency? Well, that's a tough question because there are so many, so many answers to it. But uh, one one misconception is uh, people don't Americans don't seem to understand the uh, the cause of the war, the Civil War, as it's called. But all you need to do is uh, read Lincoln's own words and uh, something called the War Aims Resolution, uh, which is online, uh, where Lincoln de uh, declared in a, a famous letter he wrote to Horace Greeley, the editor of the New York Tribune, which was the Republican Party newspaper of the day, uh, where he said, uh, my purpose in the war is not to do anything about slavery. He said, I could, if I could save the Union by uh, uh, not freeing any slaves, I would do that. If I could free some and leave others in bondage, I would also do that. But saving the Union is the purpose. And then when the United States Congress wrote what's called the uh, the War Aims Resolution in 1861, 
they said the same thing. They said, uh, we have no intention of disturbing what they called the domestic institutions of the states, by which they meant slavery. Uh, but the purpose is to, to keep the union intact. And the second biggest thing that the most Americans don't understand is that the original American Union was a voluntary union. Uh, the, uh, uh, the Article 7 of the Constitution says that the citizens of the states in political communities organized as political conventions would ratify or not ratify the U.S. Constitution. And it was a, so it was a voluntary union. And New York, Rhode Island, and Virginia, in their ratification documents, reserve the right to, uh, to withdraw their support for the union if at some future date uh, it would interfere with what they called their happiness. They used the same language in the Declaration of Independence, the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. They used that word happiness. And since no state can have uh, superior rights for its citizens than any other state, it was assumed by everybody that all the states at the time had the right to secede, the right to withdraw from the Union if they choose to do so. And that did not require permission by anybody because they were sovereign, they were all sovereign. The Declaration of Independence refers to the states as free and independent. And so Lincoln just made up a, a false theory that the Lincoln, that the, that the, uh, the Union was permanent and perpetual and that he had a right to wage total war on the entire population of half of his country in order to prevent, the, uh, in order to destroy the voluntary union of the founding fathers. And people don't understand that. The third thing I would say is that um, um, the average American has no idea in the world that slavery ended all over the planet, everywhere, without a war. Uh, there was a small slave rebellion in Haiti in the, in the 18th century but in the, in the 19th century, the, the British Empire, the Spanish Empire, the French, the Danes, the Dutch, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, New York, Maine, all the northern states had found a way to end slavery peacefully uh, without a war. And it was only Lincoln who, uh, who did it with a war. I call it Lincoln's biggest failure in my book, The Problem with Lincoln, that he did not do what everyone else in the entire world did on, with slavery and end it peacefully without a war. And, you know, the, the latest research says that the, uh, the death toll of the war may have been as much as 850,000 Americans. For, for 100 years, historians thought it was more like 620,000. And even that number is more than all the Americans who died in all other wars combined, World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, everything combined, just the, the old number let alone the 850,000 number. And more than double that number uh, were maimed or uh, maimed for life, physically and psychologically. Uh, one fourth of all military aged men in the South were killed in the Civil War. And, and of course, uh, hundreds of thousands of Northern men were killed in the war. And uh, there's nothing more costly than war in terms of blood and treasure. And so I think uh, slavery could have ended uh, peacefully like everyone else did it. But that was not the purpose of the war, as Lincoln said, and as the United States Congress said. Yeah, I, I think that right there is, is the biggest thing that stuck out to me when kind of uh, 
really actually diving into Civil War history past what they teach you in schools. Because in, in schools, it very much is that this was a war about the issue of slavery. Slavery took central issue, um, central place here, and that it was it was the only motivation for the South seceding and the North fighting the war um, was the ending or preserving of slavery. Um, depending on which side you're talking about. But uh, as your book really greatly explains, I mean, uh, that didn't even really become into the the real um, forefront until much later on. And it's still arguable uh, or very arguable and debatable whether or not it was really a motivation at all. Um, but I think where some people also what they don't know a lot about about Lincoln is something you describe a lot is the Union's behavior during the war even within the Union and I kind of wanted to ask about that because you talk a lot about how uh, Lincoln's policies were were extremely tyrannical and antithetical to the kind of the the line and story we get in the public schools so I kind of wanted to ask about about that realm and uh, what you thought about that. Sure, yeah, I, I grew up in, uh, in western Pennsylvania, north of Pittsburgh, and I'm 67 years old. And I can remember in the public schools that I attended, elementary school, every morning, uh, for the first couple of years, I was, I'm old enough to have actually had said the, the Lord's Prayer in public, public school before class. And that, that ended shortly after I became, entered elementary school. But I also remember uh, being compelled to, to to sing the Battle Hymn of the Republic and to recite the Gettysburg Address. So there's, there's a lot of propaganda involved. Not, not that there's anything wrong with memorizing the Gettysburg Address, but of all the things, those were the, the two things that we did every morning in, in the Pennsylvania public schools back in those days. But uh, yeah, the um, there's a, a, an old Cornell University historian who's passed away now. His name is Clinton Rossiter. He wrote a book called constitutional dictatorship, which is in some of an oxymoron, but he had a chapter called the Lincoln dictatorship. And anybody who studies seriously studies Lincoln, as opposed to just getting sort of the cliff notes version of Lincoln in school, knows about this. And, uh, and there are, there's a book by uh, Dean Sprague called Freedom Under Lincoln, uh, Constitutional Problems Under Lincoln by James Randall's an old classic. And these books were all published in the 60s and 70s when you could still get on a scholarship about this. And, and in the northern states, Lincoln uh, illegally suspended the writ of habeas corpus and, and mass arrest and had the military and soldiers mass arrest tens of thousands of northern uh, civilians for merely speaking up uh, in public against uh, the war or being suspected of uh, not supporting him and his administration. He essentially redefined treason as criticism of himself and his administration. Now, in, in the U.S. Constitution, the, the definition of treason is Article 3, Section 3, and it says treason is only defined, it uses the word only, as levying war upon the United States or giving aid and comfort to their enemies, their enemies, in the plural. The words United States in all the founding documents is always in the plural because it refers to the free and independent states who are united in creating this compact of states to, to delegate certain powers to the central government 
for their benefit, mostly for foreign policy and war and national defense purposes. But that's the definition of treason, is levying war upon the individual states. And that, of course, is exactly what Lincoln did. He levied war upon the southern states. So he was guilty of treason, and so were all of his top commanders guilty of treason uh, for, for doing that. And so, and so uh, he basically abolished civil liberties in the North. He shut down over 300 opposition newspapers in the North, especially some of the New York newspapers, like the New York Journal of Commerce, because at the time, the mayor of New York, the man named Fernando Wood, he went to New York City, which was even by then a hub of international trade. He wanted to become an international uh, individual city that would secede from both New York State and the United States and be a free country, this is New York City, which I think would have been a great idea. That was sort of the European model of antiquity, which is why freedom and capitalism uh, reigned in Europe for hundreds of years, I think, because there were literally hundreds of uh, small city-states, if you will, and if one of them was overly tyrannical, it was very easy to vote with your feet and move to another one. And Fernando Wood uh, sort of promoted that, but that's also why uh, New York City was uh, cracked down uh, a lot with uh, shutting down of the newspapers, and there were draft riots in 1863 after the federal conscription law came into being, and New York City had some serious draft riots, and Lincoln sent 15,000 federal soldiers from the Battle of Gettysburg there, and they shot into the crowd and killed hundreds. Nobody, no one seems to know how many, but there's a book by a man named Ivor Bernstein called The New York City Draft Riots, and he said there's at least 700 people were shot dead in the streets for, for protesting the conscription law under Lincoln. So he shut down the newspapers, he, he suspended habeas corpus, he, um, soldiers went around disarming people in the border states in violation of the Second Amendment to the Constitution, and as I said, the waging of war on, uh, on the South itself was, was an act of treason uh, by definition. Uh, Lincoln even said in one of his speeches that a man who stands by and says nothing while uh, the war and, and the administration policies toward the war is being discussed is guilty of treason. That's the kind of thing they did under communism in the Soviet Union and in Eastern Europe. Uh, people who did not, who were not silent. I have an old friend who uh, grew up in Russia. He actually worked for uh, Mikhail Gorbachev. His name is Yuri Maltsev. He's a libertarian. He's an American now. He's, he's a college professor at Carthage College now. He once told me that uh, one of his neighbors back in Moscow, back in the communist days, every morning would open her window and praise the Communist Party. And my friend Yuri said, uh, you know, why do you do this? And of course, the reason was uh, so that no one would suspect that she was not a supporter, even if she wasn't a supporter. And when, when I read this about Lincoln, that's what it reminded me of. That, uh, he said, even if you remain silent, you could be guilty of treason and hauled off to one of his gulags in New York Harbor or elsewhere. Even uh, uh, many editors and owners of newspapers were imprisoned without due process, without being charged for editorializing against Lincoln. The grandson of Francis Scott Key, who authored The Star-Spangled Banner, was a newspaper editor in Baltimore, Maryland, right near Fort McHenry, where, where his grandfather authored The Star-Spangled Banner. 
was thrown into prison at Fort McHenry, the very place, Fort McHenry, for, for uh, edit, writing an editorial uh, that criticized Lincoln's illegal suspension of the writ of habeas corpus. And uh, he even had soldiers uh, literally kidnap judges to keep them from issuing the writ. There were some judges who defied Lincoln and said, this is illegal and unconstitutional, which by the way, the Chief Justice Roger B. Taney said that it was illegal and unconstitutional for Lincoln to single-handedly suspend the writ of habeas corpus. And, and so he had soldiers literally uh, kidnap judge or hold them hostage so they couldn't make it to court to issue a writ of habeas corpus to give uh, someone accused uh, their day in court. And that's just for starters. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting as, um, that you mentioned how a lot of the policies that Lincoln implemented during the Civil War are very similar to what we saw under the Soviet Union, especially because uh, I, I certainly have noticed this trend, and I think you have as well. Um, it's been a while since I've read your books on Lincoln, but I think you mentioned these about how Lincoln had tremendous influence on the communist parties of the 20th century. Um, in fact, th many communist party conventions would have large statues of, of Lincoln. And um, I kind of wanted to ask you about d where y you think... Um, Lincoln was most influential on communist movements and um, and how that, that kind of history has been ignored and I guess why is that? Uh, yeah, why, obviously, why is it? Anyway, Lincoln is, is the ideological, the Lincoln myth as I call it, is the ideological cornerstone of the American state and so of course they can't, they don't want people to know, certainly the school teachers are not allowed to teach you this but in my, in my new book, The Problem with Lincoln, I have a, I'll make a reference to how the New York Tribune, as I said earlier, was the, the, the Republican Party uh, paper of the day. It was, it was to the Republican Party of that day what the Washington Post and the New York Times are to the Democrat Party of our day. And so, and, Hor and Horace Greeley was the editor, and Horace Greeley employed Karl Marx as an editorialist for the 10 years prior to the Civil War. And, and so Karl Marx was literally an editorialist and he wrote all these articles about about affairs in Europe uh, largely, but he was also a big supporter of Lincoln and he, commu and he communicated with Lincoln. He wrote Lincoln a congratulatory letter when he was reelected. Lincoln wrote back, you know, a very, very uh, kind letter back to Karl Marx. And, you know, there were revolutions after the Communist Manifesto was published in 1848. There were revolutions in Europe, you know, you know, that attempted to overthrow a government that they failed. But these were communist revolutionaries and quite a few of them, uh, you know, fast forward 12 or 13 years, came to America and joined Lincoln's army. And so there, there's a whole book called Lincoln's Marxists that documents all of these uh, former European Marxist revolutionaries who came to America because they thought they could do that. And in my book, The Problem with Lincoln, I'm I make a reference to, I think it was the 1933 Communist Party USA convention in Chicago. And you could Google this and you could find a picture, an image online, just, you know, 1933 Communist Party USA convention. And it, they had a stage, a big giant stage with gigantic heads of uh, Karl Marx on one end and Abraham Lincoln on the other end of, of the stage. And that was the theme of the convention. 
of the Communist Party USA in 1933, uh, the relationship between Lincoln and Marx. So th this has always been understood uh, by, uh, by these people. And in one of my books, I, I mentioned, uh, you know, I cite a historian who said that, you know, Lincoln was not a communist. I mean, nobody's saying that. He, he did things uh, to, with civil liberties that, you know, future communists would do, tyrants and past tyrants for that matter, you know, that preceded him. This is nothing new, tyranny, it's nothing new on planet Earth. But uh, I cite a historian who said that it was Lincoln more than any one man in America who brought the sort of the bloated bureaucratic government to America, just like Lenin did in Russia and Bismarck in Germany. So in that era, late 19th, early 20th century, it was Lincoln, Lenin, and Bismarck who did more than any single individuals in their respective countries being a big bloated government bureaucracy, different forms. Lincoln did not bring communism, Lenin did, and Bismarck did not bring communism. It was a different type of statism uh, altogether. But, uh, but that, I, I thought that was a very interesting and telling point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a, a very good point uh, that to hammer on because I, I do very much agree that um, while Lincoln himself was not a communist, he ended up very much inspiring many of the communists and giving them a model for them to do the things that were so destructive in the 20th century. Um, but I wanted to kind of move back to actually before the Civil War and talk about a little bit because I think we already kind of established that slavery wasn't, um, you know, the main cause. Uh, if anything, it was merely a, um, a window dressing on um, the the actual root cause issues that caused the Civil War, but I want to talk about those those issues that did cause the Civil War because, in as we have mentioned many times in public education, we don't get a really good version of the story. All we get as the lead up to the Civil War is a few slave rebellions and then how uh, states reacted to new states entering, whether they'd be a slave state or not a slave state, but. As I have read from you and many other people who uh, have wrote a very different telling of the Civil War, uh, it seems like there were a lot more. There was a lot more there, and I wanted to ask you what what you thought was there that really caused the Civil War and the secession of the South. Okay, well, the the uh, the, the, the cause of secession is very different from the cause of the war because secession does not necessitate war. Maine seceded from Massachusetts and there was no war. Massachusetts did not invade Maine. Uh, when the Soviet Union broke up through uh, numerous acts of peaceful secession, there was no war. So secession does not uh, necessitate war. And that's one thing that's important to keep in mind. And so when you, when you talk about causes like this, uh, uh, the first place to start is read uh, Lincoln's first inaugural address if you want to know the cause of the war. I call Lincoln's first inaugural address his slavery forever speech because he opens up saying he promises that he has no intention in the world of doing anything about slavery. He says, I've always said this. I've never changed my mind. You can read all my old speeches on slavery. I have no intention. And in the same speech, he endorsed what, uh, what was called, known as the Corwin Amendment to the United States Constitution, which had already passed the House and the Senate under Republican leadership. 
and it would have forbidden the federal government from ever interfering in slavery. Corwin Amendment. It was named after an Ohio congressman named Thomas Corwin. Now, in her book, Team of Rivals, uh, uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin writes about this, as I do, and, and she documents with the, uh, the original sources how this Corwin Amendment came from Lincoln. He, 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 after he was elected, but before he was inaugurated, he got William Seward, who would become his Secretary of State, who was a senator from New York at the time, to get through the Senate uh, this Corwin Amendment, which he did. And so this came, so here's Lincoln in his first inaugural address, uh, bending over backwards in defense of slavery. I, I call it the biggest, the most important and most powerful defense of slavery ever made by an American politician, Lincoln's first inaugural address. Then in the same address, same speech, he, he addresses the issue of the tariff. At the time, there was no income tax, of course, and most, about 90% or more of federal revenues came from the tariff on imports. And the Republican Party had big plans to create an empire that rivaled the British Empire and the Spanish Empire at the, at the time. And they needed money to do that. So when the South seceded, that, that would have destroyed their plans for empire. In his first inaugural address, Lincoln says it's, it's his duty to collect the, uh, the tariffs. And then he says, beyond that, there will be no invasion uh, or bloodshed in any state. So he used the words invasion and bloodshed to describe what would happen. He threatened invasion and bloodshed in any state that refused to collect the, the tariff, which had just been more than doubled two days earlier, doubled. So federal taxes are doubled. And here's Abe Lincoln in your face. I'm not gonna back down like Andrew Jackson did 30 years ago. 30 years, some 30 years prior, the same thing happened. There was a more than doubling of the average tariff rate, which Southerners considered to be an act of plunder because it was an agricultural society and almost everything that the tariffs applied were applied to were manufactured goods, farm tools, shoes, woolen blankets. They were made in the North. Uh, they did very little manufacturing at the time in the South. So they had to pay more for everything as did Northerners. And on top of that, Whenever the tariff was increased significantly like this, what happens is the Europeans who bought uh, a lot of the rice and tobacco and everything that was raised in the South, 75% of, of all the agricultural products from the South were exported at the time of the Civil War. But the Europeans became poorer. If they couldn't sell their goods, their shoes and their woolen blankets and whatever in America, they had less money with which to buy food and other things from American farmers. And so the Southern farmers, like the, like the Midwest farmers, realized that every time the tariff went up, their business in Europe went down. So they were plundered twice. Once, they had to pay more for everything that was manufactured. And second, they had less income because their business fell off from, from Europe. And, and uh, in, in 1842, for example, there, the, the tariff was increased from 20% uh, to 40%. And there was a 40% reduction in uh, income uh, to agriculture in the South. This is some one statistic uh, that I've run across. And so and they understood this. And so, but Lincoln was saying, and so they had a big, uh, South Carolina threatened to secede in 1828 and, uh, through 1832. And there was almost a war over that. 
but President Andrew Jackson uh, uh, finally compromised at the time. And so they compromised to lower the tariff rate. And Lincoln was saying some 30 years la later that uh, I am not gonna compromise. Invasion and bloodshed is what you will see if you don't collect my tax. And so the tax, uh, the, the tariff tax was a very important part of why there was a war. And I think Lincoln thought that he could uh, bluster his way into this and that if there would there was a war, it would be over in a couple of weeks, and uh, with the overwhelming uh, uh, military might of the North, and he never anticipated a Robert E. Lee or a Stonewall Jackson or a Nathan Bedford Forrest guerrilla fighter who would uh, you know force the war at the last four years. I think I think it was the biggest the biggest political I call it the biggest political blunder in American history. Lincoln's Lincoln's belief. That he could, that if there was a war, it could be ended fairly quickly. You know, the Southerners sent peace commissioners to Washington D.C. before the war started, and Lincoln refused to see them. Uh, and he also congratulated his command, naval commander Gustavus Fox, for for duping uh, South Carolinians into firing on Fort Sumter, and and uh, and creating an excuse for all-out war. Uh, and I quote his congratulatory letter in my book, The Real Lincoln. And and by the way, no one was killed at Fort Sumter or hurt. Uh, it was just a bombardment of a, a vac basically vacated uh, fort. And Lincoln responded to that with a 75,000-man invasion of all the southern states. And so this, and, and these are things that very few Americans are ever taught in school. Yeah. I, I I think you're completely correct on that um, because as as we mentioned several times now it, it, it very the public school um, outlook on the Civil War is very different from the real history um, so w one of the the last things I wanted to get to on the topic of the Civil War is uh, kind of the end of the war to right after. Um, because I think that is where a lot of the ramifications for the rest of um, the history of the United States after that point come from, particularly uh, the strategy, um, I don't know if you could call it changing, but getting more hyper-focused on this thing of, of total war in the South, of destroying um, infrastructure and then reconstructing it in the post-Civil uh, War South. And I wanted to get your your take on what the huge ramifications of the Civil War um, in its final years and then right after were uh, for the rest of America. Well, yeah, you know, you know, when you think about this, this is the waging of total war on Southern civilians. These, these were not foreign invaders. These were women and children and old men in your own country. And you're bombing their cities when Sherman, who was, I believe was possessed by the devil, stood outside of Atlanta for four days while his um, his artillery bombed uh, private homes and buildings in Atlanta after the Confederate Army had vacated and they knew it had vacated. They knew they had no military purpose at all. And he stood there for four days murdering civilians and, and watching the, the, the bodies of women and children get blown to bits. And his military commander, a man named uh, Captain Poe, P-O-E, told him, uh, you know, he literally begged him to stop it because there was no military. He was his chief military engineer. He said, there's no military purpose of this. 
uh, Sherman responded by telling him that it would, he thought it would quicken the war by, by committing such acts of terrorism against civilians, his own fellow citizens, by the way. Since Lincoln never admitted that the South was a separate country, he and his government always considered people in the Southern states to be American citizens and not Confederate citizens. And so that's one thing that the, the rules of the laws of war, the international laws of war had been evolving for many decades so that the whole world agreed that intentionally targeting civilians was, uh, was a war crime. And Lincoln and his regime did that for the entire time, not just the end of the war, but the, the entire war. They, they pillaged and plundered Manas uh, you know, Virginia in the first battle of Manassas, in Fredericksburg, uh, in the same thing. Uh, you know, and from the very beginning, it was not just the end of the war. And they mass murdered, uh, you know, even James McPherson, who was a big Lincoln apologist, uh, the retired Princeton history professor, estimated that some 50,000 uh, Southern civilians were killed during the war. And I think that's bound to be a gross underestimate. And that had to include a lot of slaves, too. They were the worst off, as far as that goes. And so, so yes, that happened. And by the way, since we're talking about the end of the war, uh, when slavery finally did end by constitutional means, uh, the 13th Amendment, which is why the famous libertarian of the time, Lysander Spooner, Spooner, hated and despised Lincoln and his entire regime because he wrote an entire book that was a roadmap for how to peacefully end slavery through constitutional means without a war. But he knew that they wanted a war, they wanted war profiteering, and they wanted to destroy states' rights once and for all. And Spooner understood that. And so that's why they went to war, to consolidate all political power in Washington, D.C. And, uh, and, and so, so they finally did that. But, but New Jersey, a northern state, voted against the 13th Amendment. And slavery did not end in New Jersey until January, or December, uh, December of 1865, not Juneteenth. December of 1865, there were still slaves in New Jersey in November and early December of 1865. And so, and then all the border states, which were run by the Republican Party, also had slaves until the 13th Amendment came into being in December of 1865. Then, of course, Reconstruction, for a while, the adult white males in the South were, were uh, uh, disenfranchised. And they rounded up all the uh, the male ex-slaves and, and registered them to vote Republican and used them as uh, as vote fodder to raise tax after tax after tax, which is exactly the opposite of what they should have done in a, in a part of the country that had been destroyed by the war. They should, have been, they should have had tax holidays for about 10 years. They did the opposite. Tax collectors, uh, they were known as carpetbaggers, went down south and would... Uh, would uh, impose these extortionate taxes on cotton and other things that the Southerners were trying to grow to recover their economy. And if they couldn't pay, they would confiscate their farms. And so many, many of these tax collectors became uh, gentlemen farmers. They, they literally stole the farms from, uh, from these people. Uh, and, and so did the politicians. The governor, the Republican Party hack, who was, uh, became governor of Mississippi under Reconstruction, retired after a couple of years with several million dollars in the bank from, from accepting bribes and, 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 and antics of this sort that I just described. So it was a continuing plundering of the South. Almost nothing was reconstructed. Uh, no, they didn't give the ex-slaves 40 acres and a mule. 
or even the mule for that matter, as far as that goes. And then they just left abruptly in 1877. And so they, 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 they totally ruined race relations such as they were in the South because they used the, the ex-slaves as vote fodder to continue to plunder the white population. And, uh, the, and, and that led to the creation of things like the Ku Klux Klan, who tried to terrorize the ex-slaves out of voting uh, uh, to plunder them. And that, I don't think that would have ever happened had they done what they did during so-called reconstruction after the war. And, and you're right, you know, when I, when I read today, like in today's newspaper, we're sending, our government today is sending hundreds of billions of dollars in weaponry to Ukraine and, and they're, you know, to, to keep this war going as long as possible. And now you're, we're starting to read about plans to rebuild U Ukraine after it's all, all over. And so American corporations will made money by selling all these bombs and, and, and everything else. And now they're going to make more money by rebuilding the buildings that they bombed out just a couple of months ago. Now that became sort of the American way of warfare. And, and our government has been at war more or less constantly ever since, haven't they, with somebody somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so that's that. And, and we became uh, we became an empire when we entered the when we got involved in the Spanish-American War. That, that was that was a war of empire to you know to to try to invade and conquer Cuba and the Philippines. Uh, the Philippine uh, insurrection that happened decades after that was no none of our business. But the U.S. government went in and is said to have killed as many as 200,000 Filipinos because once they had finally shed the Spaniards as a, the Spanish Empire, the Americans wanted to take over and make it an uh, American Empire, part of the American Empire. They didn't want that either. And so our military, uh, according to the historians, ended up killing 200,000 or, or more Filipinos to, mm -hmm. to make the Philippines a you know, part of our empire. And so that, and I consider the Civil War to be the turning port point where we uh, we we no longer became a constitutional republic, and we were now on the road to empire. Yeah. Well, I I, I totally agree with your analysis, and I I want to thank you for coming on. So I want to give you the floor really quick um, to promote anything you want to promote to my audience, um, and uh, give you that ability. Yep. Okay, yeah. Well, the things I, I guess uh, your listener, your your viewers might be interested in my three Lincoln books. First one was the real Lincoln. Um, uh, the second one was Lincoln Unmasked. Uh, what you're not supposed to know about Honest Abe is the, um, the subtitle, and the third one is the problem with Lincoln. And my latest book is called The Politically Incorrect Guide to Economics. It comes out in uh, um, August sixteenth. 2022, not too long from right now. And uh, I'm an economics professor. I was for 41 years, as I said. That's why I have a different take on a lot of issues of such things as the Civil War with the tariff and other economic issues that a historian would not be aware of. And that's about it for now. Yeah. Well, I, I thank you so much for coming on and uh, really do appreciate um really do appreciate you coming on and I'd love to have you on again at some time after your next book comes out but thank you so much okay thank you for having me and uh, happy Independence Day yes happy Independence Day to you too we must stop the terror I call upon all nations to do everything they can 
to stop these terrorist killers. Thank, Thank you. you. Now watch this drive. <laughs>